0: Hello and welcome to COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing. I'm Leo Boletsky. I'll be moderating today. I'm a professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University in Boston and UCSD Law School in La Jolla. Um, today we'll be talking about protecting uh, vulnerable substance use disorder populations during COVID-19. Um, this is a topic that's uh, close and dear to my heart as someone who uh, researches researches the intersection of infectious disease. And and uh, substance use disorder. We're really lucky today to be joined by two um, prominent lawyers in this area. Um, first, uh, Deborah Reed, who is a senior health policy attorney at the Legal Action Center in New York, um, and Nick Terry, who's a professor, executive director of the Center for Law and Health at Indiana University, uh, Robert McKinney School of Law. So welcome to you both. So the topic uh, for today is kind of focuses on exceptionalism for uh, substance use disorder treatment. Um, so this is uh, kind of a, a very strange area of law that I'm hoping that um, Deborah, you can talk a little bit about where things were before the pandemic hit when it comes to substance use disorder treatment and how the law addresses that particular area of healthcare.
1: Um, sure. And first of all, thank you for having me. Um, prior to the pandemic, a few things were going on that were in our national landscape. Uh, one thing in particular substance use disorder patients were really concerned about any changes or efforts on a legislative or regulatory basis to um, weaken existing privacy safeguards of disclosures of their healthcare records. Um, And the reason why they were very concerned or remain concerned is because Substance use disorder is not like any other chronic disease. People can get arrested for using an illegal substance, unlike if you have cancer or some other illness. People have lost um, children. People have lost employment. They've lost public housing benefits because disclosures of the fact they they are in treatment have gotten out without authorization. So it sort of sets substance use disorder apart from any other illness. So that that concern about weakening privacy rights was out there. Secondly, the other Another um, issue that was that's that's still out there is some insurers and in states were not um, providing um, equitable coverage of substance use disorder and mental health services um, versus any other type of coverage of healthcare services. Um, they weren't, in some states were not um, enforcing their mental health parity laws that that provided that equal coverage of services. Um, also, that was prior to COVID 19. We had incarcerated people not getting adequate access to mental health substance use disorder services upon their release and out into their communities um, due to a number of factors, one of which there's lack of health insurance like Medicaid and also the lack of inadequate lack of adequate um, providers in their communities that take those services. Uh, And and lastly, I mean, we could go on, but lastly, in general, people living with substance use disorders and mental health um, illnesses weren't getting adequate treatment because there's still existing stigma. There's still existing uh, a focus on incarceration instead of treatment. So this is what we're living with prior to COVID-19. Thank
0: you. Thank you for that very uh, thorough overview. And Nick, uh, can you drill down just for a second, um, specifically addressing the laws and regulations for uh, opioid agonist therapy and why that was especially important in the context of the ongoing overdose crisis?
2: Right, well, I mean, uh, historically, Historically, as you point out, uh, we've had exceptionalism in this area, and some you may view as positive exceptionalism with regard to part two. But other aspects, uh, really, uh, the exceptionalism seems to the uh, privacy rules, the substance use privacy rules. It's 42 CFR part two. Sorry technique. Um, but clearly, we have seen uh, quite uh, distinct uh, access to uh, drugs and other services uh, for those with substance use disorder uh, compared to those with other chronic diseases. Um, this was sort of partly historical, and then the Controlled Substances Act criminalization, fears of diversion sort of piled on top with specific controls designed at uh, MOUD, medication, uh, medication. Uh, medicines for opioid use disorder. Um, these have included particularly robust regulation of the prescribing and dispensing of methadone and bu- buprenorphine, buprenorphine, which I always get wrong. As the former methadone uh, before the crisis, before the pandemic, is only dispensed through a SAMHSA certified uh, opioid treatment program um, that also provides that patients have to receive counseling, uh, not just the medication. Um, and one of the problems, as you all know, is that we have a very really, relatively small number of these OTPs. In contrast, buprenorphine can be prescribed or dispensed in physician offices. But here too, there's a kicker in that the physician or other clinician must apply for and receive a waiver to so prescribe. Um, The clinicians who can be waived, the number of patients they can treat have slowly been liberalized. But this is still a considerable burden because only about 7% of clinicians have received this waiver. Uh, So these are uh, access problems that pile on top of the ones uh, that uh, Deborah just talked about.
0: In other words, there exists essentially kind of a separate and um, unequal system of care for opioid use disorder specifically. Um, and that system is so programmatic in, in the sense that you need to go to a, a clinic to get methadone um, and you need to go to a spe- specifically waivered physician or another prescriber to get buprenorphine um, and just to just to kind of um, finish that discussion why why are those two medications in particular important in the context of the overdose crisis um,
2: generally I believe the the view is because of the likelihood of diversion whether whether evidence-based or not
0: right but but um, Deborah did you want to comment on why those two medications are um, have been just so uh, closely watched and so closely discussed in context of the overdose crisis.
1: Well, I just wanted to, add, wanted to add that those are two of the medications that are really part of the arsenal of medications that are FDA approved that that are needed to address this opioid crisis. Um, you know, people have different um, illnesses that, that respond to different types of medications. So, we certainly need what's in the, the scope of what's FDA approved to be, to, to address that, and those medications are.
0: Right. No, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the statistic that, that often gets Cited is that um, methadone and buprenorphine treatment maintenance specifically, not so much um, you know sort of detox. People often talk about talk about detox or rehab, but the maintenance on those medications cuts overdose risk by 50 to 80 percent. So in many ways, that arsenal endeavor that you talked about um, uh, is uh, they're central to our overdose uh, crisis response. So now shifting gears uh, to our new reality as of, uh, you know, four to six weeks ago. Um, so we have this ongoing overdose crisis and in comes this pandemic. So in many ways, um, the stage is set with not just one, but, but kind of a pandemic um, uh, coming into an existing public health emergency. So it's, in some ways, it's kind of a syndemic where where two or more problems are, are uh, coming together to um, um, sort of do more damage than they can on their own. So, so in the context of the pandemic, pandemic, um, what are the issues and sort of the legal changes that have uh, come to pass since this new reality set in? Um, Deborah, do you want to talk uh, about specifically the CARES Act
1: provision? Yeah, uh, yeah, but before I do, I just want to say that this pandemic has sort of uh, served as a magnifying glass as to our existing health inequities in our society. Uh, I'm definitely in the Dr. Anthony Fauci camp when he said that this show what those systems that are in our in our society that aren't working um, that shows those health disparities those health inequalities for community of co- communities of color and low-income populations we, we have seen all of that happening we've seen a disproportionate number of black and brown people dying from this disease and um, there's been efforts to call for more testing and treatment and data collection of that for these communities but that's what's that's what's going on these communities as you know are, are disproportionately impacted by chronic other chronic health diseases which makes them it make, makes us more vulnerable. Um, and just another thing, we have a number of people who are working in those frontline positions who don't have the luxury of working uh, doing telecommuting. There, there are cashiers. There are uh, delivery people. Um, there are, of course, our healthcare providers. Uh, so we see how there's there's some vulnerable people in our in our society based on this pandemic. Um, we also see how what has happened because there's been a lack of the Medicaid experience in all states. Um, those states that did not take advantage of that, that Medicaid expansion of eligibility, um, you have a, now a large population who are potentially impacted by this disease, who don't have health insurance, who could have had health insurance, um, which leads to more death and you know more deaths and illnesses. Um, so you know that's what we're we're sort of sitting on right now. Um, the in terms of the CARES Act um, and confidentiality and privacy protections, basically. Basically, the privacy protections that deal with substance use disorder were just attached to the CARES Act. The CARES Act was just a vehicle. Um, if you look at the privacy protections that are in the CARES Act, you won't see any mention of COVID-19. Yeah. So the, the CARES Act was a vehicle for um, that, those provisions to move. But nevertheless, they moved because the, because the CARES Act was passed. And there are a number of things that the bill, that the, the new law does, which um, incidentally is not effective until a year after enactment which means March 2021 is when those provisions become effective. Um, just quickly, the, what's in the CARES Act as it relates to substance use disorder and uh, privacy, um, it mainsta- maintains the, current requ- the, the requirement for consent of disclosures of substance use disorder treatment records for treatment, payment, and healthcare operations purposes, which is a great thing. Uh, patients can re- take back their consent if they change their mind. They can revoke it for future uses or disclosures of their substance use disorder records. Um, But there's some caveats in there because we're using a HIPAA standard and HIPAA definition of treatment, payment, and healthcare operations purposes. One, um, the CARES Act will allow redisclosures of substance use disorder information for payment purposes. And that can lead to discriminatory denials of insurance like life insurance for for certain people. That has happened before. Um, In New York, there was a situation with that with some nurses persons who did, were denied life insurance because they were trying to get prescriptions for their patients uh, substance use disorder um, uh, medications. And also uh, the treatment portion of those um, disclosures, those disclosures for treatment purpose are not limited to the providers that the patient may know. Under our current regulations, under 42C of our part two, the patient has an option of disclosing their records to all of their treating providers, meaning people who they know, who've agreed to treat them. Um, Unfortunately, there still are some providers who treat substance use disorder patients badly, who deny care to them, who give them, you know, uh, who give them care that's substandard. So, this new law just gives it a more broader spread in terms of treatment. Um, there And then there we come to the, health, the healthcare operations portion, treatment payment, healthcare operations. The healthcare operations standards for disclosures um, It also includes, under a HIPAA definition, disclosures to non-patient care functions, things like underwriting, fundraising for a particular healthcare entity, training of non-legal staff, legal services, sales and transfers of assets. Now, why why is that important? Because all of those functions that are non-patient related are potential avenues for if people's information to be disclosed um, for reasons not for treating purposes, but for other reasons like people, everybody doesn't live in a, in a big, big city. People live in small towns. You know, the person that's working on underwriting may be your next door neighbor and all of a sudden they know that you are in treatment and you may not have wanted them to know that. So that's one of the issues that remains with the CARES Act. Um, Although the CARES Act includes some anti-discrimination provisions, which are great, uh, the problem becomes that these anti-discrimination provisions do not cover discrimination against people who are using illegal substances. Um, And why that is so, because our current anti-discrimination provisions like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Fair Housing Act have an exception for uh, protection for people who are currently using illegal substances. So people who are using Heroin, cocaine, and in some states marijuana, which is still illegal in some some areas, will not be protected by those um, protections in the CARES Act. Um, and finally, there just needs to be more guidance and training from SAMHSA on the changes in this particular um, law. I mean, for all stakeholders, including providers, families, patients, of course, everybody in the health field, insurers, etc., so that people understand what their privacy. Uh, uh, confidentiality requirements are and rights as well. And that should be done in a way that's done in a a culturally competent way. Also done in a way that people who have limited English proficiency will be able to understand what what those requirements and rights are. And people who have uh, limited health knowledge will understand as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's really enlightening. So we'll come back with some questions. But before we do that, um, Nick, I was wondering if you could talk about um, the actual survey that's a and how that has
2: responded to COVID-19 and and why that may be important. Actually, I think it's been a a sort of a rather pleasant surprise that um, SAMHSA and the DEA have sort of got out ahead of this. Um, We were expecting the usual HIPAA emergency declaration stuff and so on, Uh, but DEA really came out of the blocks fast. Um, So, for example, um, uh, now you can, um, as an exception, so that medications can be delivered by... By persons other than licensed clinicians and um, through indirect means such as doorstep lockboxes, boxes. Um, you can have longer prescriptions. They vary depending upon the stability of the patient, but this means longer supplies. Um, the DEA has also um, liberalized the prescription of buprenorphine um, primarily by increasing the use of telehealth, uh, which included leaving the important? requirement.
0: Why is that important in the context of COVID-19? Because
2: because people can't get out. People are locked in. People with these kinds of disorders um, are, in prob- are in worse shape than those of us in better health. Um, they are in their homes stuck without the drugs that keep them um, in one piece. Um, and so being right. able to get these, right. these drugs supplied to them is so important. Uh, with regard to bipolar there is now much increased use of telehealth um, there's been a waiver of the requirement there first be an in-person um, medical evaluation this then even days later this was further liberalized allowing telephone prescribing without any examination and we're hearing stories really upbeat stories of um, clinicians going through the homeless populations with their cell phones and be able to get treatment directly to persons with with so less, so much less friction. Um, Now, new uh, methadone patients still have to have an OTP initial screen, um, but generally um, we're seeing quite a lot of liberalization. There's also liberalization with regard to telehealth uh, reimbursement for Medicare, which is a subset here, um, and some states are liberalizing reimbursement for Medicaid uh, telehealth. On the privacy issue, um, uh, Deborah, of course, is quite correct um, in a couple of ways, Uh, uh, first of all, this had nothing to do with COVID-19. It just appeared um, without much notice in the COVID-19 uh, bill. Uh, secondly, as she points out, it uh, doesn't come in. These regulations uh, won't kick in for quite a long time. And the difficulty of writing these le- these regulations that we've seen before, we may not see them for two, three, four years. Um, the overall policy question, of course, is do we want to separate uh, privacy regimes, Um the, the answer um, endorsed by SAMHSA um, and many of us has always been yes because of all the issues that Deborah raises. Um, on the other hand, we know that this has caused major problems for providers uh, providing continuity of care um, for how they uh, uh, record in the EHRs and so on. So this is an attempted recalibration of that. We don't know how good or how bad it is yet, I think. Um, but as Deborah notes, the the anti-discrimination provisions are really interesting. Uh, There are gaps in them, um, I certainly see. um, But... For the first time, we really do have uh, anti-discrimination laws passed directly to address this issue, which was the major objection to changing the privacy law in the first place. So we'll see how those play out also in the regulations. Um, The other part of CFR Part 2, 46 CFR Part 2, has been historically the protection of substance use records during the courts process, um, testimony, and so on. Those provisions remain the same and, in fact, have been slightly strengthened. So I think there was an attempt to sort of try and balance uh, this during this recalibration. I don't think we'll know um, uh, whether the extent to which Deborah's fears play out until we see the regulations.
0: Thank you. And and just to, uh, we're coming to the end of our our broadcast, and and one of the uh, questions that i try to ask of all participants is to um, comment on you know sort of there's been a lot of change that has been brought by this pandemic and some of it good and some of it not so good uh, in terms of the legal frameworks um, specifically with substance use disorder as well and we all want to um, you know re- return to some semblance of normalcy but in, in some areas um you know the normal normal default wasn't that great to start with. And so I wanted to ask you both, uh, starting with Deborah, about, you know, when this is all over, um, what changes would you like to see um, maintained and and what changes would you like to see sort of uh, return back to normal or to the default that existed before?
1: Well, I think um, one thing that has occurred, which is a positive thing, is that we've seen uh, the healthcare delivery system. be more creative because of this crisis. You know, people back in the day said, oh, you know, we we can't possibly do telehealth or behavioral health services for mental health and substance use disorder. That, you know, that just wouldn't work. Now we see that is working. So this is a good thing. I'm sorry it had to come because of a, you know, crisis, a healthcare crisis, but that's a good thing that we have seen that it's working and works well for people, not in substance use, not only in substance use disorder and mental health, but in other services as well. Um, I would like to see when we, air quote, return back to normal, that we do better. We do better for those populations that are underserved. We do better for um, uh, making sure we have adequate uh, resources for our first responders that are out there. We do better for uh, that we get Medicaid uh, coverage for low-income communities, for all low-income communities across the nation, because if we don't, we see how um, populations will remain vulnerable and will remain sicker and will die because we don't we're not doing better. So um, I also would just like to see that we, we understand the importance of privacy um, for patients who are uh, substance use disorder patients, and also patients who have other sensitive health conditions. There's still state laws that have uh, confidentiality protections for certain healthcare alpha, um, information: HIV and AIDS, mental health, uh, genetic testing. I can go on and on, but privacy is still very important. Yes, we need to coordinate care. We don't need to do it at the expense of people being too afraid to come in for treatment. I
0: say amen to that.
2: Nick? Well, I think uh, you know, uh, we are watching a sort of natural experiment here, aren't we? Um, we will find out maybe a little bit more about what it means to stop having so many soft arrests and some particularly with regard to drug paraphernalia and so on. What will it mean if we stop using our jails and prisons to warehouse the old, the mentally ill, those with substance use uh, disorder? Why did the first call as soon as this happened was, will we have out-of-pocket payments to have COVID-19 testing or treatment? Well, that tells you something about the problem of -of out-of-pocket expenditures that everybody is facing. And Then I think in the specific areas we've been talking about today, DEA is going to have to watch to see whether it really can shift from exceptionalism to sort of universalism. Maybe this recalibration of how uh, persons access their MOUD uh, might really be uh, worth what is likely to be some abuse, likely to be some diversion, but maybe we can see a, a route forward to calibration that shifts so that more people get more treatment faster and better.
0: And with that, we're going to wrap up. I think in many ways, uh, COVID-19 has shown a light, as as Deborah was saying, and, and Nick as well, on uh, things that were really not working very well. And substance use treatment is one of those areas um, in the crisis Provides an opportunity to, uh, you know, from chaos comes order in a a little bit to to try to uh, experiment and um, create a new, better way of doing things than we were doing them before. Um, So, this has been a COVID 19 law and policy briefing uh, focused on substance use disorder changes. And I'm sure this is just the first of many conversations on the topic. And I wanted to thank our presenters, Deborah Reed, who is a senior health policy attorney with the Legal Action Center. Uh, which, uh, by the way, does amazing work on this uh, in this area and has for years. So um, you should check them out. Uh, Legal Legal Action Center in New York. Um, And Nick Terry, Professor and Executive Director of the Center for Law and Health at Indiana University, Robert McKinney School of Law. Um, And Nick has been doing really uh, groundbreaking work on the overdose crisis um, uh, in the sort of
1: Midwest
0: uh, area and uh, has done a lot of legislative um, advocacy and um, testimony. And and I thank you both for joining us today. And thank you so much also to uh, Dave Callick, who is our producer and is uh, responsible for making all of this work behind the scenes. Thank you so much.
1: Thank Thank you.